0: I'd like to introduce Ms. Shannon Brownlee. Shannon Brownlee is the acting director of the New America Foundation Health Policy Program and an instructor at the Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice at Dartmouth Medical School. She has written for publications including The Atlantic, The New York Times, Sunday Magazine, and The Washington Post. She's also the author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine Is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. Please give a warm welcome.
1: Thank you, Dulce, and thank you all of you for um, braving the traffic. Um, I had my first experience of true LA traffic today. It took an hour and a half from um, Santa Monica to Beverly Hills. So, you guys put up with a lot sometimes to be here, so thank you for coming. Um, So a few months ago I co-convened a conference called Avoiding Avoidable Care um, in Boston, and Don Berwick was one of our keynote speakers, and Don Berwick for many of you may not know, was the head of um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in Washington, D.C. for two years, and Don is one of the great figures of healthcare reform. He's a pediatrician from Harvard. He created an organization called the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He's widely admired, and he's just an incredible man, incredible leader, and um, he called me the Thomas Paine of healthcare which I thought was really amazing. I mean, Thomas Paine, the, the man who, uh, who wrote one, one of the most famous lines, of the American Revolution, um, these are the times that try men's souls, which probably applies now, is the author of Common Sense, which John Adams said, without which the sword of George Washington would have been raised in vain. That's pretty heady stuff, but if you ever feel like your head is getting too big or you are too big for your britches, go home and tell your teenager what has happened. Share your accomplishments with your 16-year-old son, who said, you mean Thomas Paine the Radical who wanted to abolish all religion, who was convicted of libel, and uh, who had only six people at his funeral. Way to go, mom. (laughs) but at least he was listening in in, uh, in American history class so I should be grateful but you know I do feel a little bit like Thomas Paine um, or maybe a combination of Thomas Paine and Jacques Cousteau because as a, as a writer and essayist and now a policy analyst I've been let into an extraordinary world of medicine I've um, and it is an extraordinary world and I'm gonna spend a certain amount of time trashing a lot of what happens in that world right tonight but I acknowledge and recognize the, the amazing things that medicine can do. I mean, I've watched open abdominal surgery, which is the closest thing to killing a man and bringing him back to life that you can get to. It was really incredibly beautiful. And one of the pieces of it that I remember most vividly is that the anesthesiologist, this man is you know, out cold, of course, and the anesthesiologist laid her hand on his cheek to test his temperature, but also to offer a little bit of comfort to a man who was unconscious. And I've seen those kinds of acts of compassion and kindness, even in the midst of beeping machines and the chaos that is the American hospital. I've seen a a physician's assistant just calm, a frightened and agitated and, and about to be violent teenager, mentally disturbed teenager, by just putting her hand on his arm. So there are many technological and highly human and compassionate aspects to our modern medicine system. But there are also many pieces of it that, um, that are not as compassionate. And one of, the, one of the aspects of it that I think most, is most in need of reform is the way we treat patients who are dying. So I want to ask you a few questions. Um, who wants to die of a heart attack? <laughs> wow, that's a pretty savvy group. Who wants to die of a stroke? Who wants to die of cancer? Do I, going once, going twice? Uh, well that leaves frailty and Alzheimer's because, oh, oh, I forgot one. Who wants to die after, at the age of 90, after playing tennis, um, having dinner, making love and fall asleep in, <laughs> and not wake up? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's our secret fantasy, isn't it? <laughs> We're going to be healthy, 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 dead. (laughs) But the reality is that the vast majority of us are going to get choice number four, which is frailty and dementia. Even though we will probably die of those other three, we will also have frailty and dementia. And we'll spend anywhere from three to ten years of our last years of life um, increasingly frail and increasingly demented as we decline very slowly. So how we spend those final, vulnerable years will be crucially important to us as individuals, but it's also, as you can imagine, crucially important to how much we spend on health care. We spend um, often the majority of spending is in those last few years of life. And we spend a phenomenal amount of money on end-of-life care. And I'm not talking about just the last couple of weeks, I'm talking about sort of the last few years of a person's life. And we are totally unprepared for the sheer number of people who will be demented in the next two decades and who will be unable to care for themselves um, with the baby boomers. Sorry, young folks, but we are your burden. (laughs) Um, And we don't have long-term care insurance in place. Um, We've not thought about the kind of medical care that we really need and the kind of care that we prefer. Um, and so the and, and part of the problem is that the kind of care we prefer is often not the kind of care that we, we receive. So sometimes I think, I imagine Martians coming down from outer space and landing in an American hospital and looking around and thinking, well, what did these old people do to deserve this? Because an awful lot, if you've spent time in a hospital, an awful lot of what happens um, is... pretty bad I mean it it's done in the name of extending life some of it is done in the name of improving the quality of life and probably does you know a knee replacement really does improve quality of life but an awful lot is done in the name of extending life and it's hard to um, to imagine that all the people who receive that kind of care are really getting the kind of death that they wish Um, Now, I know that there are many people who are willing to undergo anything for a few extra weeks, or a few days, even, of life. They want to live at any cost, and I know that many families say, do everything, doctor. But we all know that all too too often what happens to our elderly parents, our siblings, and sometimes, tragically, even our children, is not what the family or patient would have chosen, and especially is not what they would have chosen if they had understood what was really involved. Um, And for providers, for doctors and nurses, um, as well as for families, an awful lot of what happens feels like everybody's gotten on an escalator leading to more and more and more care, and nobody can figure out how to get off that escalator. The doctors and nurses can't figure it out, and certainly patients and families can't figure how to get off. And, and I want to relate a, um, a story to you that comes, a case that comes from a doctor at Mass General Hospital, a young man named Angelo Volandes, who um, is really a pioneer in the care of dying patients, and I'll tell you a little bit about how he's a pioneer. So his patient, Helen, not his patient, someone else's patient, Helen T., was 80 years old. She was suffering from advanced Alzheimer's and she broke her hip in a fall. So she was brought to the hospital, the emergency department at Mass General, and a surgeon approached her daughters to obtain informed consent for a surgical hip repair. But when the daughters asked about their options, they were told that not repairing the hip surgically would leave their mother in tremendous pain. So they told the surgeon that their mother had an advanced directive and that it said that she did not want to be intubated. She did not want to have a tube put down, her, um, down into her lungs so that, so that she could put on a ventilator or a breathing machine. She didn't want to be intubated. And the surgeon said that advanced, directive, advanced directives were temporarily reversed all the time and that it was standard procedures to do that for patients who broke a hip. So then an internist was called in to evaluate Helen's fitness for surgery, and he noticed an irregularity in her EKG, Um, and he ordered a cardiac enzyme test, which is a test of whether or not you're having a heart attack, and it was a little bit elevated. So he recommended that she have a procedure called a catheterization, which is an imaging test for looking at the coronary arteries to see if there's a serious blockage. It's an invasive, um, and it's an invasive procedure. So um, she had a catheterization, and it led to the placement of a stent, a cardiac stent, a very expensive little device. So while Helen was in the recovery room after her catheterization, she stopped breathing. Um, CPR was performed, and she was intubated. And CPR was continued for five minutes until they got a pulse, and then she was brought to the ICU on a ventilator. And she stayed on the ventilator for a week took the tube out or extubated her after seven days. On day nine, Helen was transferred from the ICU to the operating room where she was re-intubated for her hip repair. She was transferred back to the ICU, intubated, still intubated because they couldn't extubate her because she couldn't breathe on her own. Um, She was on the vent in the ICU for another week when she developed something called aspiration pneumonia. And um, so... Uh, She had an aspiration pneumonia, and by the end of the week, the ICU doctors approached the daughters because she was still on the ventilator, and they said, there's another decision point. Do we want to perform a procedure called a tracheostomy, which is to put in a, a more permanent breathing tube and put in a feeding tube? And I don't know whether it was a nasogastral feeding tube, which goes up through your nose, or whether it was actually through the side. Um, But they agreed. They reluctantly agreed, but they agreed, thinking that if they'd gone this far down the road, uh, fixing their mother's hip, then she deserved every chance to make it, even though she never wanted to be intubated and she never wanted CPR. So another week goes by, and Helen is stabilized, and then she's transferred back to the long-term acute care unit of her nursing home. So for the next month, Helen shuttled back and forth from the nursing home to the hospital four different times first for another aspiration pneumonia that was quickly cured with antibiotics, then for two episodes of a urinary tract infection, which also resolved with antibiotics, and finally an episode to reinsert her feeding tube, which she pulled out, and then her wrists were put in restraints. During the last hospitalization, one of the medical residents at Mass General decided to consult the palliative care team. This is a a a new specialty in medicine, And the palliative care team, their job is not just patients at the end of life, but really anybody who's had a serious operation uh, is facing a great deal of pain or patients at the end of life. And they do a, a team approach where they really talk to families, they talk to patients, they talk about goals of care, goals of life. Um, So the palliative care team spent the next couple of days sorting through Helen's medical history and getting an assessment of her prognosis from every one of her specialists. The team then met with Helen's daughters. And after much deliberation, they decided that their mother never wanted any of these interventions and that hospice would be the right choice for her at that time. Two months after her fall and her hip fracture, Helen was transferred one last time to the hospice unit where all invasive, invasive treatment was stopped. She died peacefully, surrounded by her children and her grandchildren. So why do cases like this happen? Every person involved in Helen's care wanted what was best for her. Her daughters wanted what was best, her doctors, her nurses. And every person was aware of her advance directives, which seemed pretty clear in retrospect. So we could dissect this case for the rest of the time we have together. There were many inflection points where different decisions could have been made. But really, the big picture take-home message, I think, is that this was really about communication. Um, These cases happen in part, I think, because of a kind of a dance of denial. There's this back and forth between the doctor and the family where nobody really confronts what is really going on. So the physician says, your father's heart is failing. It's possible to help it beat more regularly if we implant this device called an implantable cardiac defibrillator. Without it, your father's going to die. And the family thinks, well, of course, we don't want dad to die. So all too, too often, nobody ever says to the family, your father is in the end stages of heart disease. We have some choices, none of them are great. If we simply continue treating him, he will continue to decline. How long he has, we can't say, but we can make sure he's as comfortable as possible, and we can probably help him die at home if that's what he wants. Another choice we have is we can implant this device, which will help his heart beat regularly when it starts to stop. Will it help him live longer? Maybe. Will it prolong his death? When the time comes, it certainly could. I'll give you another case. This is from a hospitalist, a, a, a primary care physician who was working in a hospital in the south, and he told me about a patient that he had who, um, this, this was a little old guy who everything was going wrong. His lungs were bad, his, he had heart disease, he had kidney disease, he was a former alcoholic, he had diabetes. This was a very sick patient. Um, and he had an exacerbation of his diabetes, it was uncontrolled, and he was back in the hospital yet again. So... My friend Peter is talking to um, this patient, examining him, and the man's demented as well. And, uh, not Peter, the patient. And <laughs> Peter says, um, Peter said to me that this, the, he was examining the patient, and suddenly the patient clutched his chest and began to scream. And then he looked directly at Peter and said, Stop it! Stop it! And what was happening is he had an implantable cardiac defibrillator in his chest, and it went off. Now, this is a device that's about, well, about the size of, a little bit bigger than a Walkman. And it, um, it does, in effect, what the paddles do that you've seen on ER, where they shock the heart into, back into rhythm. So the patient's heart stops, and you shock it, and it goes back into the rhythm, the patient is OK. Well, this, the, the implantable cardiac defibrillator does the same thing inside, and it can pack quite a kick. And some people say it's like being kicked in the chest by a horse. How many of those people have actually been kicked in the chest by a horse? I'm not sure. But uh, it hurts a lot. And this man thought that Peter was shocking him because he didn't remember that a couple of months before he had had an ICD implanted in his chest and that that's what was going on. And I don't know what happened, but I can imagine the conversation, which is a cardiologist who is concerned with the man's chest, with his heart, not with the whole man, but with his heart, says, your father's heart is starting to beat irregularly, and we have a device, and if we implant this device, it can help his heart beat regularly, and it'll prevent it from stopping. So the man, um, the patient... Was in the hospital for another week and a half or two weeks, and his ICD went off several more times before somebody said, Okay, we need to turn this thing off, and he finally died. So, That is another part of the problem, is that the various specialists often don't see the whole patient. They see the individual parts, and that's their job. It's their job to really think about the patient's heart, but it's also their job to think about the whole patient, and that all too often doesn't happen. So the one thing that is often left unsaid in this sort of dance is the fact that there is very little chance that doing the surgery will really have a meaningful impact on the length of life, and it, in fact, often may make the time that the person has left be worse. And even when it does get said, it's often said too far down the road. The family has already made the decision to do the surgery and for somebody to come in and say, "Um, maybe we should rethink this, is to throw doubt And chaos and turmoil into what is a very very difficult time for them or it is said by a hospitalist or maybe even a palliative care specialist who isn't the surgeon and the surgeon is holding out these wonderful pearls of hope if we do this your dad your sister your child your brother your uncle will live and if we don't do it he'll die so Nobody said to Helen's daughters, your mother is in the end stages of dementia. They knew that, but to, to say it is very, very important. She has made her wishes clear in an advanced directive, and we cannot let her suffer from the pain of her broken hip, but we don't have to repair it surgically because surgical repair in someone so frail and so demented often leads to a long, long period of immobility, and, and she will things will start to happen. So we can make her comfortable without surgery. Nobody said that. So with my own father, the surgery being offered was something called carotid endarterectomy, which you can sort of think of as rotor rooter for your carotid arteries, the arteries that take blood to your brain. Um, And it's intended to remove plaque from those arteries and reduce the risk of a future stroke. Now, the surgery itself poses a risk of stroke. So you have to be at very high risk for stroke for the surgery to be worth it. But even then, it's not always worth it. You have to have an expectation of, being, of living another five years for the benefit of this to sort of play out. So um, the, the surgeon came into the room, and everybody in the room, my stepmother, my two brothers, my father, everybody but me and the surgeon thought that this surgery was going to magically make my dad better. It was going to magically make him be funny and articulate and back to sculpting and painting again, his old self. They sort of had this magical way of thinking about it. And, and in this dance, families are very sad and they're very scared, and mostly they've never seen death and frailty before up close. And they don't know enough to ask, what is the likely course of events? What will happen if we don't do this? What will happen if we take dad home and to continue to care for him and love him and keep him comfortable? And the, the, the sort of light bulb went off, um, luckily for my family and for my dad, I think, when, when I said to the surgeon, what will this do for my dad's quality of life? And he was perfectly upfront after you know, spouting all the benefits and how my dad was really the right kind of patient for the surgery. He said it will do nothing for his quality of life. And my stepmother said, it won't? And so they decided not to do it. And I'm happy to say he's still alive. So why does this happen? Why do people find themselves on this train that leads towards more and more and more, even if they sign an advance directive? Why does this happen? So patient demand is part of it. Patients come in. We have this outsized expectation of what medicine can do. 34% of Americans in a poll said that they thought any disease was curable if you had enough money and the right doctor. That means death is optional. I mean, I'm in Southern California, I know that that's a common perception. But um, patients demand all kinds of stuff, and, um, and, and families demand it, and they often think that when it comes to medicine, more is better, more tests, more drugs, more time in the hospital. But they're really only part of the problem. Um, And we know this from a whole series of studies. So if you look at differences in the patterns of care in northern and southern California, there are huge differences. Um, There is a three- to four-fold difference in California hospitals in in how patients are cared for in the last six months of life. Not three to four percent, three to four-fold. In a recent poll by the California Healthcare Foundation, only 7% of Californians said they wanted all possible care to prolong life. The vast majority said that they wanted a natural death. Yet, despite these clear preferences, and you know, these preferences can change as people get older, but this is pretty strong, only 7%. Yet, despite these clear preferences, the strongest predictor of the care that dying patients receive in this state is not what they want, but where they live and the hospital where they get their care. In 2007, chronically ill patients at UCLA spent an average of nearly 14 days in the ICU over the last six months of their life. That's up a third compared to five years earlier. And and it is more than three times longer than patients at UCSF. Even at Cedars-Sinai, which is just down the street from UCLA, it was considerably less. It was 9.6 days. During that same period of time, from 2003 to 2007, the percent of deaths that occurred in the hospital decreased at most California hospitals. It rose 25% at Glendale Adventist Hospital. I think that's in Southern California, isn't it? Does anybody know? Um, and this is not happening, I think, because patients are that much more demanding that they die in the hospital in Southern California. Um, all too often, what patients want is not what they get. They, it is, what they want is being trumped by the pattern of care, the habits of the physicians and nurses in that hospital. So it's been said that statistics are people with the tears wiped away, but when you put the tears back, the statistics represent events that happen to real people like Helen T. and to my father, and those events really matter in the lives of patients. So... um, and, and this, this gap between what patients want and what they get has been recognized for a very long time. So in the 1990s, there was a very large study that was undertaken. It was called the Study to Understand Prognoses and Preferences for Outcomes and Risks of Treatment, the SUPPORT trial. And um, what what the trial involved is um, is is taking patients and randomly assigning them to two different treatment groups. And one treatment group said, you're going to get usual care. Your doctor will take care of you. You'll land in the hospital. What happens to you will happen to you. And the other group, they did actively 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 tried to get patients to sign advanced directives they then actively worked with the hospitals where those patients went to make sure that they got the care that they really wanted whether that care was do everything doctor or please you know keep away no CPR no intubation no this no that so they worked really hard and what happened it was a monstrous disappointment because It did not really make a very big difference in the patients who got the the advanced directives and the support for the kind of care that they wanted. So whether it was that they wanted lots and lots of care near the end of life, or whether they wanted very little care at the end of life, the intervention didn't seem to make that big of a difference. And a subsequent study of what happened during that trial found that it turned out that where the patient got their care was more powerful than what they said that they wanted. The patterns and habits of the clinicians in the hospital where they ended up were more powerful than what they said that they wanted. So um, in 1997, the Institute of Medicine summarized some of the shortcomings of our end-of-life care in in a report called Approaching Death, Improving Care at the End of Life. And it recommended increasing access to palliative care, which can make a difference. Um, the IOM also encouraged physicians to talk to their patients more openly about the care that they, pre- that they preferred to receive. But we don't think that that is really happening in the way that it needs to happen. Now, the use of palliative care has gone up since the 1990s, and the use of hospice has gone up as well. And, um, and, and it suggests that end-of-life preferences are being followed a little bit more closely, but huge problems still remain. So, um, I want to read a few statistics for you about California hospitals. So, in 2003, 33.8% of patients died in the hospital, Um, and in 2007 that had dropped to 31%. However, the rate of death in the hospital in California is significantly higher than the average in the rest of the country, which is 20, 28%. So in California, it's 38, 32%. The rest of the country is 28%. And when, when you say that it's, that's the average, it means in some places it's dramatically lower, in other places it's quite a bit higher. So the percent of deaths in the hospital at UCLA is 45%. At Glendale Hospital, 51%. At Cedars-Sinai, 50%. Encino-Tarzana Regional Medical Center, 45%. Antelope Valley, 40%. Long Beach Memorial, 38%. This is very high. These are all very high. Now, at the low end, we have a hospital called Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital, 25% of deaths in the hospital. Palomar Medical Center, 24% of deaths in the hospital. How many of those are associated with the ICU? UCLA, 40%. Up 5% over the years from 2003 to 2007. Glendale Adventist, 40%, up 6.8%. Cedar Sinai, 37%. They dropped. At the low end, Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital, 16%. Palomar Medical Center, 17%. So, what that says is that you are more likely to die after spending some time in the ICU during your final admission to the hospital, you're more than three times more likely to die with an ICU admission at UCLA than you are at Palomar Medical Center. So number of hospital days, Cedar sinai in the last six months of life, and think about this, 180 days in the last six months. Cedar sinai you get to spend 22 of those at the hospital. UCLA, 19 of those. Methodist, 18 18 of those. You spend a significant percentage of your last six months of life in the hospital. So, And that's the average, by the way. There are patients who spend most of those last six months in the hospital. um, And others who spent virtually no days. So at the bottom of the list, interestingly, UCSF is at the bottom of that list. Stanford Hospital is at the bottom of that list, along with Santa Barbara Cottage and Palomar. So it's very hard to imagine that Stanford and UCSF have low numbers of days in the hospital in the last six months of life because they are withholding care, because they are rationing wanted, life-saving, life-prolonging, needed care. It's it's very difficult to imagine that they're saying, no, we're not going to put you in the hospital um, or let you into our ICU, we don't have room, or we're saving it for somebody younger or somebody more worthy or somebody who has a bigger paycheck or better insurance. We're sending you home. So one of the things that is really interesting to me um, is that Palomar and Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital are both consistently at the bottom of the list for intensive care unit days, hospital days, et cetera. So where do you think they rank in terms of hospice days for their patients? So Palomar Medical Center is at the very top. 25 days in the last six months of life. Patients spent in hospice. Santa Barbara Cottage, 21. UC San Diego is 17. Stanford is 14. And who is at the bottom? Cedars-Sinai, eight days. Glendale at Venice, eight days. UCLA, 10 days. So is this because this is what patients prefer or is this because this is the pattern of care in the hospital? I just heard from um, a patient who told me that, um, oh gosh, was it her father? Oh, it was the former head, the former chairman of the board of a very large insurance company. And his um, mother was in the advanced stages of dementia and she was hospitalized, she was in the ICU, and he said, my mother doesn't want these interventions, we need to go to hospice. And the doctor said, why would you send your mother to hospice, all they have is palliative care. And he had to fight and fight and fight to get his mother into hospice. And, this, and I think this is unusual. I think this does not happen as much as it used to, but it still happens and it shouldn't happen. We the patients, we the family should be determining what happens at the end of life. So it isn't, we don't see this in t- incredibly huge range in how patients are treated at different hospitals because that's what patients or families are saying. We see it a little bit because of what families are saying. But there are other reasons why this is happening. Um, days in the hospital has to do with our doctors tell us, with how they behave, When a patient's chronic condition worsens, it sometimes seems easier and safer to put the patient in the hospital. Um, Even though, in fact, it probably would be reasonable to start treatment in the nursing home, in the clinic, or even at home and have a home health nurse come and monitor. But if hospital beds are easily available, they're regularly available in that hospital, physicians unconsciously adapt, and they become more willing and more susceptible to admitting patients into the hospital than if they practice at a hospital down the road where there aren't quite as many hospital beds per capita available, or when there aren't quite as many ICU beds available. or So So in the ICU, for example, the more beds that are available, the less sick the patients are who get into the ICU. It means that it's more available, it's easier to admit a patient. So. It is possible that some of these differences are patients' preferences for care, but it turns out that when you really study regional variation and how patients are cared for at the end of life, it has to do with something that seems very, very counterintuitive. It's that the availability of beds, ICU beds, hospital beds, has a lot to do with how easily the patient is admitted into the hospital, and what then happens, they get on that cascade of things, of treatments, of tests, of we can do the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. So we have this idea in this country, or we have had, I think it's beginning to change, that there's no such thing as too much medical care. And therefore, there's no such thing as too many doctors, too many hospital beds, too many intensive care units. And in fact, after World War one I, I mean, excuse me, World War 2 the US went through a, a hospital building spree. And it lasted well into the 1970s. And one result is that California is carpeted with little hospitals. In fact, no place in California has more hospital beds than Los Angeles compared to the size of the population. So if you drive down surface roads in this city, you will that not on the freeway, you can't help but run into yet another hospital. They are built they're sort of an accident of history and of government policy, of subsidies, something called the Hilburton Act. Um, And because a lot of doctors settled here. And so there are more doctors in Los Angeles than there are per capita than any other place in the country. 333 patients per doctor. Now, when you have a hard time getting in to see a doctor, that might seem kind of weird, but there are lots and lots of doctors, and they are all very, very busy. And those beds are very, very full of patients because you can't run a hospital when there are empty beds, just like you can't run a hotel when there are no guests. The difference is between a hotel and a hospital bed, as a hotel guest, you've made the decision to go stay in that hotel. Maybe it's for business, maybe it's for vacation, maybe they offered a cut rate, but you made the decision but as, and as a customer, you can choose to stay or not to stay, but a stay in a hospital bed is not quite under your control. A stay means that your doctor has admitted you to the hospital, which is a funny word. I always think about admitted as just like, you know, the, the velvet rope in front of the nightclub, and I'm getting admitted to the nightclub, only I want to be in the nightclub. <laughs> but in order to get admitted, the doctor needs to decide that you are sick enough to be in a bed and it turns out that those decisions about whether or not you are sick enough to be in that bed hinge in part on the supply of beds so there are all of these different there are all these different forces that determine what's happening to us but they're not our forces they're not our decisions as much as they need to be so what can we start to do about this? Well, one way, I think, to start doing something about it is to think about what a really great health care system would be like and what end-of-life care would really be like in an ideal world. Um, has anybody ever thought about that? I mean, thinking about your own death is probably not a whole lot of fun and it's hard to do, but it's, you know, it's something, it's something that ancient cultures have done for a long time because death is clearly part of life. It's, it, and, and we think about all the other important events in our lives. We think about marriage. We think about babies. We think about um, our children graduating. We think about all these incredibly important events. And then there's this one event that we really sort of want to shove off on the medical system. So we probably need to think about our own deaths. And we also need to think about what that idealized system would look like. So when I think about it, and I'm not talking about whether, how we finance it, whether it's single payer or not, which is what we often think we're talking about when we talk about health care reform. I'm talking about how care is delivered and how patients are actually treated. So in my ideal world, I imagine a health system in which patients no longer feel like widgets and doctors no longer feel like factory workers, which they do. They feel like factory workers in a factory where the conveyor belt's going too fast. Um, I imagine a world where doctors really talk to their patients. When was the last time you had a physician you felt like really, really listened and talked to you? A doctor I know um, in Seattle takes care of diabetics and rather than homing in on their numbers, there's a test called the hemoglobin A1c. He He doesn't talk about that. He says to his patients, what do you like to do? Because he sees his patients as people not bags of disease. And he wants to help them do the things they care about. He can't cure their diabetes, but he can help them live with it so they can do the things that they care about. So another quality in my idealized world is the hospital would no longer be where all the action is. We would start taking the billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars that go into hospitals, and we would start spreading those dollars outward, out into the community out into people's homes. We would have people cared for much more often at home, especially at the end of life. We would have people cared for in primary care, and your primary care doctor, by the way, would have time to talk to you when you're old and frail. Um, And that's a real shift, and it's not gonna happen fast, because um, the hospitals are where the action is right now. The other quality, another quality is that, that doctors would no longer feel afraid of their patients. Right now they are afraid of you a lot of the time. They see you as a walking lawsuit waiting to happen. And we have to fix that problem because all of this communication that really has to happen has to be based on trust. And you can't really trust somebody that you think might be suing you. So it's, it's a very hard problem to solve and the solutions we've come up with don't work. By the way, you've had uh, tort reform in this state for I think, the last decade, and it really hasn't made much difference in... in uh, it's, it's dampened the number of lawsuits, but it hasn't dampened the behavior that we see um, between doctors and patients. And finally, I think we would have a very different way of helping patients understand what their treatment is all about. No decision about me without me is something you should think every time you go into your doctor's office, every time you're in the hospital. No decision about me without me we would make sure that patients understand the trade-offs involved in almost all medical care, and there are trade-offs. There are not just potential benefits, there are potential harms. (laughs) And we have to think about what the downstream effects are of elective surgeries, of screening tests, PSA testing, of mammography. We have to think about the downstream effects, and especially the downstream effects of making the decision to surgically repair the hip of a woman who has signed an exa- advanced directive and who doesn't want invasive, she doesn't want to die with tubes and fingers in every orifice as, um, as doctors and, and medical students sometimes say about the ICU. So I don't have time to tell you about other patients that I could tell you about. But I guess finally, in this ideal world, I think one of the things that I would like to see is that the joy and the dignity of caring for patients would be restored to physicians. They've lost a little bit of that. And it's an incredible privilege to be a physician and a nurse, and to be party to some of the most incredibly momentous events in other people's lives. And like all people, doctors and nurses want dignity and honor and respect. And patients want those same things, but they want one thing extra. They need comfort. And when patients' wishes are not honored, when they're not treated with respect, when they feel that their doctors don't care, they often substitute more medical services, more tests, more treatments, more drugs. They've come to believe that the doctor who gives more tests cares more, and the doctor who gives more technological care cares the most. So here's finally what I believe. We are at an incredibly important crossroad. And it will not only determine the fate of American medicine for many decades to come, but also the economic fate of the nation. And I know that sounds incredibly grandiose. But it is not. If anything, I'm underplaying the importance of how we deal with how we die and how we deal with health care reform. Because our children's economic future depends on our willingness to start acting in many, many ways over the next five years. So when you hear the words federal deficit, think health care. When you hear the words unemployment, think health care, because health care costs, rising health care costs are contributing to 20% of our unemployment numbers. So it's time to speak to your doctor. Now, before you're desperately ill, it is time to speak to your family. Crucially important, and I know how incredibly hard that is. Um, I've been trying to talk to one of my brothers about my dad for quite a while, and he says, what are you, the death panel? So it can be really, really painful, but in the end, it's one of the most incredibly important conversations that we can have, and ultimately, um, and I'm hoping that my brother and I can actually talk about it in a way that brings us closer and allows us to talk to our Father. Um, and, you know, the, one last thing that Don Berwick said. He said, there is majesty in the ideals of how we want to see our society structured and how we want health care to be structured. There's majesty in those ideals, but the angels are in the details. And each of you is one of those angels in how you deal with with talking to your families and talking to your physicians about your own death. So, um, good death to you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> my name is Patricia Eady. Um, I recently went through the death of my 95-year-old mother. And she spent time in two different hospitals. Uh, the first one was UCLA because her doctors were there. The second was because of an emergency that took her to a different hospital in our location. and. When we got to the second hospital, as we progressed with her care, we were met with a palliative care team. We had no idea that palliative care existed in that hospital. And as a result, my mother had a death with dignity and it was wonderful for the whole family. Uh, my question is, we tried to look for information about hospitals. It is ver- How do you unearth the kind of statistics that you were sharing, and how do we know if you say where we die makes a big difference on how we die? Where do we get that information?
1: I'm actually um, preparing a report for the California Healthcare Foundation on on uh, two kinds of two two reports, actually three reports that will come out early next year. One of them is on end of life care in different hospitals in California. One is on cancer care. At different hospitals in California. And the third one is on variation in rates of surgical procedures in different parts of the state, which vary enormously. So um, go to the California Healthcare Foundation website, it's, I think, chcf.org. And um, you'll find one report there already on surgical variation, but the one on end of life is going to take a little while because we're getting more recent data. We're trying to get data up to 2010. And, and we think it's important to get those data because there may be really pretty substantial changes um, in California hospitals in the last couple of years. California Healthcare Foundation, and um, I'm very I'm sorry to hear about your mother, but it sounds like it was really a good experience. Palliative care is crucially important, and it is available at more and more hospitals in this country. And um, the more patients who come in and say, "I'd like to talk to the palliative care team," the more hospitals um, that don't have strong teams will take note of it.
2: Uh, good evening. My name is Kyle Schneberg, I'm a plaintiffs attorney. Mm-hmm. And for the majority of the past few years, I've sued and defended some of the medical facilities in the, in the area. Uh, while I agree with you about the deficit of, of knowledge among families uh, with regard to palliative care, I was recently informed that about 20% of the federal budget, and I, I must admit, this, this is a statistic that was told to me recently, t- about 20% of the federal budget uh, is accounted for in Medicare, Medicaid, as well as a program that helps children uh, with their medical issues. But So a large percentage is medical uh, care. What role do you see the economics playing in the decisions uh, overarching the medical industry with regard to choosing palliative care over full-code treatment and extending life?
1: So um, repeat the question to me, because I don't, I don't quite understand what you're asking me.
2: What role do you see the, the pecuniary interest of hospitals playing in whether or not to recommend and provide palliative care services versus ah, okay. extending life?
1: So what, what's the financial interest of the hospital in terms of, of recommending palliative care? Um, hospitals are paid in, as, as many of you probably know, hospitals are paid for delivering more care, not better care. And it's something that is starting to change. The Affordable Care Act is intended to start that shift. I don't think it can come fast enough. It has been a crazy way to pay. It has incentivized hospitals to invest you know to, to overinvest, for example, in the ability to do um, cardiac stenting. We way overdo cardiac stenting in this country. We do more far more than any other country in the world, and we don't have better outcomes for it. Um, So they have been incentivized to to invest in things that are highly profitable and to not invest in things like palliative care. So that will change, but the more patients start to demand things that really matter to their lives, um, the more the hospitals will, in fact, be forced to do it. So thank you. That's that's an important um, piece of the puzzle here.
3: My name is Russell Brown. I have a, a master's degree in healthcare administration and public health, and for many years I managed uh, three departments in hospitals: uh, respiratory therapy, uh, blood gas lab, EEGs, pulmonary function. And in a number of and I consider myself very fairly spiritual. A number of times, some of us would go into patients' rooms in intensive care and in the stillness of the night and the weekend, you can actually feel in certain patients where the soul has left. And although the respirator and the monitors is still going, some of us started noticing this emptiness and this coldness in the room. Has anybody in healthcare ever taken on more of the spiritual aspect and the transition part of it and tried to incorporate that into the palliative care and the end stage of life,
1: that being out of touch with these sort of profound experiences um, is sort of become the American way of death, and families aren't there to experience what happens. And so, um, I don't. But I don't know what what whether palliative care is doing that. I suspect not. I mean, their palliative care is to some degree trying to sort of fight for recognition both among the public and among um, healthcare care professionals that it really is a legitimate and incredibly important specialty with with particular skill set. And one of its most important skill sets is the ability to control pain. They are really good at controlling pain. And that is a crucially important thing at, at, um, for, for anybody who's had a serious procedure, serious operation, and often at the end of life. Thanks for your question. And I'm curious
4: as to what steps might be taken to ensure the, or increase the probability that our preferences, even if they're well-formed and well-expressed, are followed. Uh, Whether we are either well aware of our surroundings and the the factors of uh, what our care would would provide, and what choices we can make, or if there are others that are making those decisions for us, what steps can we take? I mean, beyond saying, uh, these are my preferences, and I will not pay and will not authorize my estate to pay for any services beyond this and maybe add some financial interest there. But what, what can we do to make sure that those debts are not only our preferences, but there are our, our orders
3: that will be followed?
1: Well, there's some sort of mechanical things that you can do. I mean, certainly you have to sign the advance directive. There's another form, a very, a really good form called a pulsed form. Don't ask me what post stands for. I can never remember. Somebody knows. Dude. What is it? Orders, the physician 's orders for life sustaining treatment pulsed form, um, but then you got to make sure that the pulsed form goes with you, so if you are uh, in fact my brother my younger brother, who is willing to talk about end of life issues, has encouraged my father and my stepmother to pack a hospital bag that has the, the, their advanced directives if they have any, they are not telling. Um, if they've got advanced directives to put them in the bag, all their medication bottles in the bag so that, you know, that the doctors at the hospital know. And because they, you really need to have the form there at that very moment. Um, talk to your doctor a lot. Make sure that your doctor knows what it is you care about. And that could change as you, as you age. What you... What, I'm sorry?
4: Are those directives binding?
1: The directives um, can be binding, yes, but not if they're not right in front of everybody.
2: My 87-year-old mom is probably going to be in the situation that you are talking about, and she's going to be in the Kaiser system. I noticed you didn't mention anything about the Kaiser hospitals. I'm obviously very curious about their uh, rates and experience in what you've been talking about.
1: I wish the Kaiser data were in what we're looking at, but they're not, um, because it doesn't include Medicare Advantage data. It's only the fee-for-service data. But um, you know, I think Kaiser is a system where you could actually call them up and ask them. Because <laughs> they measure a lot of stuff. And Kaiser in Southern California is a little bit different from Kaiser in Northern California, um, because they don't own their own hospitals in Southern California for the most part. So you can find out which, which hospitals she's likely to be in. And it may, in fact, be in the report when it comes out. I'm sorry the report isn't ready, but the data just didn't get it. We didn't pry it out of Medicare uh, soon enough. Hi. I was wondering, as far as uh, palliative care, we're allopathic medicine. How are they joining together? How do they team together? And just for the gentleman talking about spirituality and medicine, Larry Dossey, are you familiar with him? No. Um, he's done a lot of work with how prayer and they've done MRIs and how it actually does help patients and healing and comfort in the last days of life. Larry Dossius is his name, the healing medicine power mm-hmm. prayer, but my question is about allopathic care, alternative methods. Oh, you and mean how like homeopathy? Right, homeopathic, right. allopath, how it works, in palliative mm-hmm. care. I, I don't know. I think that may vary from, from practice to practice, whether or not they, they incorporate um, alternative medicine or not. Uh, certainly acupuncture may be one of the things that some places incorporate. You know, the, believe it or not, the, the, um, the military is starting to use acupuncture for pain, for, um, for uh, relief from anxiety.
2: It seems to me there is a lot of great statistics out there and there's more and more coming out about variations between hospitals, both in like the incidence of rates and also like success rates in treating stuff, especially like MIs and things like that. But it's really hard to find, especially for lay people. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how we could do a better job of getting that information out into the community and if you thought that would change the way people chose
1: hospitals. So Consumer Reports is actually starting to try to do a hospital rating. And it's really hard to rate hospitals. It's just incredibly hard to do. So Consumer Reports has, has a hospital rating, but they rate only certain things. And then this, this California Healthcare Foundation series is going to be um, sticking to California hospitals and going to be talking about different aspects. So for a while, it's going to take... Um, consumers, I hate calling patients consumers, um, uh, are going to have to cobble it together for themselves. And if, if we could find ways to make it more consumer and patient friendly, that would be great. That would be a huge service, I think. Will it change behavior is a very important and a much harder question to answer, and I don't know the answer. Um, the the little bit of data that's available right now says it does not, because mostly you go where your doctor tells you to go, or you go where it's easy to get to. Will it actually start changing, um, say, people saying, well, I don't think I'm going to retire near a hospital that doesn't give you everything or does give you everything I'm gonna retire in a place that looks like it's it's doing a better job of coordinating care of really making sure that it follows advanced directives all those things I don't know if people are start doing that um, anytime soon or not but I'm thinking about getting do not resuscitate tattooed on my chest (laughs) (laughs) and I know a nurse who did it
3: (laughs) and I wanted to ask I know you're from back east if uh, here in California we've had a lot of use of home hospice care Um, uh, Anecdotally, my mother was diagnosed with lung cancer in August of 2007, and so she opted for the program. She had a terminal diagnosis of less than a year, and it was wonderful. Medicare paid for everything because it was much cheaper than a hospital. Uh, She just all really needed was morphine and oxygen, Mm -hmm. and she passed away in uh, January of 2008. Uh, We had weekly visits from an RN and also uh, doctor visits, and they basically took care of everything in the way of equipment. And so this was a great option for a hospital. Uh, so you don't need hospitals. Maybe I should mention for the record too, I'm retired now, but I was a budget officer at UCSF and UCLA. So I know, I know a bit about how finance drives decisions.
1: <laughs> ah, you have a few stories to tell of your own. Do you, do you wanna do something off the record sometimes? <laughs> um, actually, thank you for your comment. And in fact, I think this is really what we have to start doing is we have to start saying, that people really do want to be in their homes for the most part. My dad, the last time my dad was in the hospital, he said, I am never going back there again. And he will go back there again, because there aren't really arrangements for when the next stroke happens. So I wish, I hope that, I wish that in the days or months or maybe even years that he has left, that there were a way to ensure that he got cared for where he wants to be, which is in home. But um, eventually, I think we will have a lot more of that, a lot more high-touch care. Am I on I'm this your side? Left. This side. I'm still on the left. Great. Hi. Hi I'm
4: Jean uh, Dorio. Thanks for being here tonight. I'm from Santa Clarita. I am a physician. I'm a, not only a um, internist and geriatrician, but I'm also a palliative care doctor and a hospice doctor. Thank you. And I do do house calls, and I do have, like, this gentleman said I do house calls on patients and cover them for hospice care as well. But I, I find that uh, with my colleagues, I think the, I know we can look at the hospitals as uh, problematic, but I look at my colleagues and when I've been practicing for 31 years and uh, in those 31 years, uh, 31 years ago and try, trying to get into medical school, you had to have straight A's and you had to have high MCATs. And the char- if I were to characterize the physicians who uh, are part of my group, who are in their 50s and 60s now, most of them um, really don't have the skill sets to be able to uh, discuss the, have a discussion like this with their patients. And I find that uh, very problematic. And I think my question mainly is, how are we going to get the primary do- care doctors who uh, have those skill sets from the get-go, from the very beginning, who uh, might not be straight A's and might be a little lower in the MCATs, but have the empathy and sympathy to really end up taking care of our patients in a palliative and a hospice care setting?
1: That is a really meaty and rich question. So, um, and let me answer it in two ways. Uh, I think physician behavior changes quite rapidly with, um, with patient demand. So um, it, it looks like it doesn't take that many patients to start to get practicing physicians to start saying, hmm, I better ask my, question, my patient what the patient thinks. When, the, when, when a certain number of patients come in saying, well, I really want you to talk to me about what I care about here, and I really need you to talk to me about what I value, etc. So I think it is possible to start to change physician behavior, but you're absolutely right. Physicians have, A, not been selected for their communication skills and, and are often appallingly bad, and B, um, have not been trained. So we need to do both. We need to start selecting physicians in a different way and some medical schools have tried to do that but they're not doing enough and so a good friend of mine, Jerry Hoffman, who's, a, who's an emergency physician says that, that what we right now we have is there's this bare minimum bar of your your sort of empathy quotient like if you're not a murderer and you're not a felon you pass that bar but then you have to pass this really high bar on this testing thing and what it ought to be is something more like this that Okay, so you're pretty smart, you get into medical school, but you have to be high on the empathy, at least for certain specialties. Maybe you don't need to be high on the empathy for being a surgeon. (laughs) Maybe many of them aren't, but... I actually know some really wonderful surgeons. But you do have to be high on the empathy bar and the communication bar, but you also can teach communication skills. And medical schools have to make a much more concerted effort, and it can't be just one course in talking to patients. It has to be incorporated into all four years, and then it has to be reinforced during residency. How do you talk to patients? And, but you patients have got to start asking for it. You've got to say, you know, doctor, um, I didn't understand a single word of what you said. My mother sat in the room with the electrophysiologist who went ba and I know a lot of medicine, and I didn't understand a word, and my mother's going like this the whole time. <laughs> and afterwards, I said, Mom, did you understand what she said? And she says, not a single word. <laughs> so patients have got to say, slow down. I don't know what you're talking about. What is intubation? What is CPR? Wh- why do- when do you do it? Oh, and by the way, how many people get out of CPR? <laughs> Seventeen percent, if you coded in the hospital. So, so I think it's a it's got to be a multi pronged strategy. But it's going to take it's going to take a lot of patient voices and a lot of physician leader physician voices. So I hope your voice is um, strong and willing. Good, thank you.
5: Hello, my name is Randy Scheinbein, and uh, I have a situation somewhat similar to something that you had described but let me just give you a brief history my father had uh, who happens to be a physician uh, and has had dementia for probably seven or eight years uh, had a stroke and when he had the stroke uh, we were my brothers and I were uh, uh, did never had seen him in this condition before and were Uh, agreed to allowing him to be put on a feeding tube, which has now been a little over a year. Oh, my goodness. And and he has had many episodes of, of pneumonias in and out, all being cured by antibiotics. The question that I have is not relevant to his care. It's relevant to the issue with my brothers. Two of us will agree that we don't want anything extraordinary to be done. And one of my brothers wants to just do anything to uh, allow my father to have every breathing day that he can have. And medicine is remarkable, because he has been brought back at least seven times uh, through antibiotics uh, and various other treatments. And my question is, where in the process is there a psychologist that comes in and sits down with the family and deals with this dilemma and puts it on a more practical level? Because we've had several discussions about palliative care, and he is at, uh, getting care at UCLA Santa Monica, which is their, where they have their elder care. And when I asked about uh, their palliative care, they said, oh, it's an outside group that you talk with. So it's not even affiliated with the hospital, which to me means there's a disconnect in yes. the economics. So wh- how can the family get better advice and better guidance to not be in the uh, dilemma that we're in, which is basically waiting for medical care to make a mistake?
1: Wow, that's a tough one. Um, So I know of cases where palliative care was brought in and was able to to resolve these family issues simply by actually talking to the holdout member of the family in a way that was welcoming and... um, really tried to get at what their thinking was. Because it's often the case, and I'm, I'm sure our palliative care doctor, I'm hoping would, would, would um, agree, is that the, it's often the case that there is a sibling who feels the most guilty somehow about, about their behavior when the pa- parent was alive. Now that's not necessarily what's going on, but there, there are all these family dynamics that are important. And um, did your father express his own wishes?
5: I think that at the time when he did his directive, uh, there wasn't really a consideration of, am I going to be ill with an illness, or am I going to be ill with dementia? And I uh-huh. sort of think that, that your directives should maybe go two different directions, have two different solutions.
1: You're you're in a real fix, aren't you? And I don't know what the answer is, but it, it may be possible to... Um, to find a different hospital with, with better palliative care or more ready palliative care. I don't know. If there's some, yes, please.
4: Well, generally, I when I approach my patients, I talk about their quality of life and their quality of life issues, where they were before and where they are now. And as they step down in the level of their quality of life, I bring those issues to the, the family members so they're aware of that. And many a times they can see their their parent when they are young, and now they see their parent as they're old. And as they have seen that step down, then they can get a better view of, in terms of how that quality of life is and how it's not as good as it was before, and now how they're suffering. So I bring that into play as well to make sure um, that uh, family understands that. There's a lot of guilt that goes in many family members, but I think when it comes to looking the best for their family, uh, for their loved one, they uh, definitely say, I need to uh, look at where they are in terms of their their life, their lifestyle, the quality of life, all those issues, their comfort level, their discomfort level, their pain, uh, all of that. And uh, when I bring that up, uh, that puts it in a little bit better perspective uh, uh, for the family and those who aren't uh, looking at all the little factors.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for, for sharing your, your dilemma, and I wish you all the best. I, wish, I hope there's a resolution soon. Thank you. Sure.